Well, today we begin a brand uh, new study that I'm very, very excited about, and that is a study of the epistle of Paul uh, to the Philippians. Of course, Philippians is one of the four what we call prison epistles of Paul, uh, four letters that he wrote from his imprisonment in Rome. Uh, can anyone name the other three letters? Ephesians? No, not Romans. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. Those are the four prison uh, epistles. And what I'm going to do today is just simply provide uh, some background material, uh, introduce our study, uh, provide an overview so we actually won't delve into the book uh, uh, today, but uh, next week, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1, we'll uh, start and we'll go right through the book. I anticipate it taking us probably about six months uh, to get through uh, this uh, precious book of Philippians. It's a, it's a book, a letter of only four chapters. I would encourage you to uh, begin uh, reading uh, the book on your own to become familiar with its uh, truths. Uh, it only will take you about 10 or 15 minutes to read the entire book in one uh, setting. Now you'll notice with the sermon notes today, and I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes, uh, I'm going to give you first on that first page some background material on the city of Philippi, the church at Philippi, and then the occasion or the purpose for the writing of the letter. And uh, you may not want to try to follow that. Uh, I'll work through this, but I will uh, expand on more than what is written uh, in your notes, but at least you will have uh, the very uh, basics of uh, what we will share. Uh, first, a little bit about the uh, city of Philippi, which is very, very interesting. It was located in Macedonia, uh, which today would be northeast Greece. It was named after Philip, uh, who was the father of Alexander the Great, but it came under control of the Romans in 168 uh, B.C. It was a, a region that was extremely fertile agricultural land. Uh, it also uh, was filled with silver and gold mines that by this time in history uh, had been exhausted. Uh, they had been mined and the uh, treasure had been taken. But Philippi's primary importance was its strategic location as a gateway between Asia Minor and Europe along the Roman road uh, that was known as the Ignatian Way. Uh, the Ignatian Way was a highway that the Romans built. It was about 700 miles long, and it connected the western half of the Roman Empire uh, with the eastern half. Uh, the Ignatian Way began on the west coast of what is the modern nation of Albania at the Adriatic Sea, uh, went across Albania, totally across the nation of Greece, into Turkey, and it ended at we, as what we know today as the Turkish city of Istanbul. Uh, the city of Philippi was located right in the middle, right in the middle along that highway, so it became, in a sense, the tollway between Europe and Asia. And this explains why the founding of the church in Philippi was so important. Uh, Philippi's location uh, provided this church this incredible opportunity 
to promote, to advance the gospel both into Europe and into Asia. Uh, the Greek people of Philippi, and this is an interesting historical note, uh, were granted Roman citizenship uh, after the famous battle of Philippi that took place in 42 B.C., in which Octavian, who later became known as Caesar Augustus, and Mark Antony uh, defeated uh, Cassius and Brutus, who, of course, were the assassins of Julius Caesar. Uh, the battle, uh, which took place just outside the city of Philippi, had immense uh, historical significance for you historian buffs. Uh, this battle marked the end of the 500-year-old Roman Republic form of government as the Roman Senate named Octavian to be Caesar Augustus, the first of a long line of emperors who ruled with absolute authority. Uh, the name Caesar Augustus should ring a bell with you because he was the emperor when Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus. Uh, Octavian, or Caesar Augustus, converted the city of Philippi, and this is significant, into a Roman military colony. And he populated the city with Roman army veterans of war, creating great loyalty to Rome. Philippi became Rome in miniature. Uh, they adopted uh, Rome's architecture, uh, the dress of the Romans, the custom of the Romans. Latin was the official language, although there were many Greeks who spoke uh, that as well. And Roman pride ran as deep or deeper in the city of Philippi than any other city in the Roman Empire. Now, religion in Philippi consisted of various Greek and Roman pagan cults with a very, very minimal or small Jewish presence, but the dominant religion was the emperor cult. The emperor cult deified the emperor and worshipped him as the supreme kurios, which means Lord, and sorter, which means Savior. Absolute allegiance and obedience to the emperor was required by all. It's important to understand that from the Romans' perspective, they really didn't care what god or gods you worshipped. As long as you acknowledged the emperor was above all other gods, and you were to give him absolute allegiance. So it was required, if you were in the Roman Empire, to periodically go to a Roman temple, which would have been there in Philippi, and uh, there would have been uh, a marble bust of uh, Caesar Augustus, and they would have had to have burned a little incense, and as they burned that incense to Caesar Augustus, they would proclaim, Caesar is Lord. Uh, other titles that the emperor took upon himself uh, was the Son of God, which actually was the favorite title of Augustus, and he put that on virtually every coin that he minted along with his head. Uh, the emperor was also known as the high priest, and it was this deification, it was this worship of the emperor which marked the Christians for persecution. Uh, 
because they refused to acknowledge the emperor as the supreme son of God. But instead, they gave their allegiance to the one true son of God, the one true Lord and Savior and high priest of all men, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the church at Philippi. Now, don't look at your notes. Let me give you a little Bible test. Uh, He founded the church... Uh, Paul founded the church along with his co-worker Silas during his second missionary journey uh, around 52 A.D. Uh, The historical account is found in Acts chapter 16 uh, beginning at verse 9 all the way through verse 40. It's a very uh, exciting account. Uh, It sort of would make for a great movie, an action adventure. And and let me see, uh, don't look at your notes. Let's see how many of you uh, can remember some of the... uh, Important things about the founding of the church of Philippi. Who remembers the name of the very first convert in Philippi? Very good, Lydia. Uh, Lydia was a, a wealthy merchant who's, uh, who uh, sold uh, fabric that had been dyed in purple. That was a very valuable commodity at that, in that day in the Roman Empire. We also know that Lydia was a Jewish proselyte. In other words, she was a Gentile. She was a Greek who had converted uh, to Judaism. And you remember, it was uh, typically Paul's custom uh, when he went on his missionary journeys to found, to plant churches, that he would always first go to the synagogue. And he would share the gospel, share the message about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection uh, to the Jewish believers in those synagogues. In Philippi, there was no synagogue because the Uh, Jewish uh, presence was so very, very small. So he went out to the city and he found just a very small group of women who were all Jewish proselytes. Apparently there were no blood Jews there in Philippi, but there was this small group of women who were Greeks who had converted to uh, Judaism. He found them worshiping God and uh, there uh, outside the city along a riverbank Uh, he shared the wonderful good news about Jesus Christ. And the scripture tells us that Lydia's heart was opened up to that truth and she was converted. And then shortly after her conversion, her entire household was converted. And actually, uh, her home became the central meeting place initially for the believers in Philippi. She invited Paul and Silas uh, to reside with her. And again, that did become the initial uh, worship place Uh, for that church. Now, do you remember the significant event that took place in Philippi that uh, got Paul and Silas in hot water? Anybody? Remember there was a um, fortune-telling, demon-possessed young girl that began to follow Paul and Silas everywhere they went and just harassing them. And uh, Paul finally had enough and he delivered her from that demon possession. But her masters became enraged because they just lost uh, their money-making adventure. They were making uh, a lot of money off of this young girl and the uh, fortune-telling abilities that she had uh, that were given her to her, of course, by satanic uh, powers. So uh, enraged uh, by uh, what Paul and Silas had done, they uh, drugged Paul and Silas before the authorities of the city Uh, They inflamed the civic pride of the citizens of Philippi by claiming that the two preachers uh, were a threat 
uh, to Roman law and to Roman customs. And as a result, what did they do to these two men? That's right. They first beat them, beat them severely, and then they threw them in jail. And then something very, very significantly happened at midnight in that jail. What was it? That's right, an earthquake. You remember Paul and Silas, although they had been beaten, although they had been in prison, they began singing praises to God around midnight night. It said all the other prisoners began listening to them, and right at that time, God brought an earthquake. All the prison doors came open where the prisoners were able to escape. And remember, the jailer took his sword, and he was about to take his life because he knew he would be held responsible uh, for the escape of those prisoners. And Paul intervened, uh, prevented him from taking his life, said, look, not a one of us has left, and they had not. And Paul had the wonderful opportunity uh, to lead that man uh, to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then not only that, say, uh, uh, a jailer was saved, but his entire household uh, was saved as well. And then you'll remember, uh, after discovering uh, to their horror that they had uh, beaten and wrongfully imprisoned Roman citizens, they didn't realize Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, uh, the frightened authorities literally begged Paul and Silas uh, to leave Philippi. And they did so after one last visit uh, to those new uh, converts, uh, giving them encouragement. Uh, we know that Paul visited the church on at least two other occasions during his third missionary journey. And we also know that the church entered a very uh, unique relationship with Paul in providing material support uh, for his ministry. Uh, let me just read a couple of verses out of uh, the last chapter of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 15 and 16 that indicate this. Paul writes, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. The point I'm making here is Paul apparently had a relationship with this church that he had with no other church. He had developed a very close friendship uh, with them. And they uh, became committed uh, to supporting Paul on a regular basis as he propagated uh, the gospel uh, of, of Jesus Christ. Now, the occasion for the uh, writing of the letter. What was the reason uh, that this letter was written. Well, the letter, of course, was written, as we already noted, uh, by Paul from his imprisonment in Rome. And uh, he wrote it a decade after founding the church in Philippi. Founded the church in about 52 A.D., a little more than uh, uh, 20 years after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And then in 62 A.D., approximately, he wrote this letter. And uh, hearing of uh, Paul's imprisonment in Rome... Uh, the uh, church sent Paul a love gift that he speaks of and thanks them for in uh, chapter 4, verse 10. And along with the love gift, they sent Epaphrodites uh, to give it to Paul and to minister uh, to his needs. Epaphrodites apparently was one of the key leaders in the church, uh, one of the key elders uh, possibly. Uh, we know that Epaphrodites from chapter 2 suffered a near-fatal illness uh, but thankfully recovered. And then on his return to Philippi, uh, Paul wrote this letter 
to the Philippians and uh, sent it uh, with Epaphrodites to share with the church. And in the letter, uh, Paul basically updates them on his circumstances. Again, it's a, it's a letter of friendship, uh, a letter of great affection and appreciation. So he updates them about his circumstances. And then he addresses two fundamental uh, areas of concern related to the church that he had learned about from Epaphrodites. Uh, the first was disunity uh, because of internal conflict. Uh, we learned from chapter 4 that there were two apparently prominent ladies in the church that were in a quarrel with one another. And it was threatening the peace uh, of the church. And the second concern was suffering from external uh, uh, opposition. Uh, from persecution. And, and why was Paul concerned about these two issues? Because he knew that disunity and the fear of persecution could threaten the advance of the gospel. So both of these concerns are brought together very early in the book in the very first imperative that's found in the letter. And you'll see that there in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. You see these verses on the two large screens. It says, He said to them, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Notice the emphasis on the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, there's the issue of unity, striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you, and that too from God. Now, you can look on the back side of your sermon notes, and you'll notice that I have listed uh, five recurring themes that we find in the book of Philippians. And what I, what I trust this overview will do this morning is create a hunger and a thirst in your heart uh, for what we're going to learn in the book of uh, Philippians because there are many, many precious truths and there are these five recurring themes. They're like threads that run throughout the entire book and for each one I've given you the various references that would uh, allude to this particular theme. And the first one is the priority of living and sharing the gospel. This was Paul's supreme concern as he wrote this book, as I just mentioned. This is why he was so concerned about the disunity and about the persecution. He did not want this unity to destroy the church or the fear of persecution to cause them to retreat so that the gospel would be hindered from advancing. Uh, and of course, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news about what God did through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to bring salvation to sinful humanity. It's about how Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to this earth as a man to bear the penalty of our sin on Calvary's cross, to cancel out our sin debt, to forgive us, to impute His righteousness to us, and to take up residence in our hearts. Jesus died as the Savior of the world, and He rose again, and He's alive today as Lord of all. And God saves a person. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, He saved you for the express purpose 
to make you an instrument to share the gospel with others, to proclaim that good news to a lost world. Uh, Paul said in Acts 20, this verse is not in your sermon notes, but this will show you the heart of the Apostle Paul. And this should be the heart of every believer. In Acts 20, verse 24, he wrote, But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work God assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others about the good news, about the wonderful grace of God. And Paul, who had been imprisoned for sharing the gospel, he understood better than anyone else, the pressures being put on the Philippians to keep their mouths shut in order to avoid conflict with the Roman authorities who did not tolerate the teaching that Jesus Christ, not Caesar, is the Savior and Lord of all men. Bottom line, as I've already mentioned, Paul's primary concern for the Philippian church was for them to get their corporate act together for the sake of the progress of the gospel of Christ in Philippi and to regions beyond. They were to come together, united to withstand all opposition and boldly promote the gospel of Jesus Christ through the witness of their lives and their lips, regardless the cost. And in our study of Philippians, we too will be challenged with the priority of living and sharing the gospel in the society in which we live, a society that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity and its moral absolutes. The second major theme that runs through the book that is often highlighted in any study of Philippians is the secret to true, true joy. Uh, this may be one of the primary reasons you want to come through this study, uh, to learn the secret to true, true joy. You know, most people are consumed with a passionate search uh, for happiness. Uh, believing happiness is found in favorable circumstances. But unable to control their circumstances, they become what? Controlled by them. Uh, when their current job, relationship, pleasure, or material possession fails to bring them the happiness they had hoped for, they dump it and they look for a new one. They find themselves on this merry-go-round of life that never seems to deliver the happiness that they so desperately are seeking. They discover that joy leaks and it seems impossible to contain it. Yet in the letter to the Philippians, we discover that the circumstances of both Paul and the Christians in Philippi were not circumstances you would expect to produce joy. Despite Paul being a prisoner in Rome, in the worst of circumstances, and the Philippian believers being desperately poor, and they were, we'll see that as we go through this study, and suffering persecution, and they were suffering severe persecution at the hand of the Romans. They experienced joy at its best, while circumstances were at their worst. It was just, it's just almost unexplainable, and the only explanation is the Lord Jesus Christ, who dwelt within their heart and gave them an inner contentment and joy that only He can give. You know, one writer called Philippians... Paul's personal manifesto on how to live a life of joy. And uh, what we will discover 
is that joy is the settled conviction that Jesus Christ controls the circumstances in a believer's life. And he is using those circumstances for the believer's good and for his, God's, greater glory. And so in our study of Philippians, we're going to discover uh, the secret to true joy, a joy that cannot be disturbed by circumstances, cannot be disturbed by people, cannot be disturbed by things, cannot be disturbed by worry. The third reoccurring theme is the importance of attitude or the importance of right thinking. And of course, this truth goes hand in hand with the theme of joy because the attitude we have toward God, the attitude we have toward circumstances, people and things will determine our joy or lack of it. Our our outlook on things determines what our outcome. In Philippians 2, Uh, a magnificent passage where we will see we are exhorted to have the mind of Christ, to think like Christ thought, to have the same attitude that he had. So in our study of Philippians, we will discover uh, the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ that leads to true, lasting joy, and we'll learn to think like Jesus. Look at the fourth recurring theme, and that is the surpassing value and gain of knowing Christ the surpassing value and gain of knowing Christ. Uh, It's in uh, uh, the book that Paul makes such comments like, for to me to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. He says, I count all things loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in comparison Uh, to gaining Christ. He says, I press on towards the goal of the prize of my upward call in God in Christ Jesus. And no wonder Paul had joy. His joy did not depend on the temporal attractions of this world, but the eternal value of knowing the person of Jesus Christ. Think about it. Just think about this. To live for anything this world can offer, you're living for anything this world can offer is really never to know true lasting joy because why you must constantly try to protect your treasure and you constantly have to worry about it losing its value but if your treasure is Christ he can never be stolen and he never loses his value amen amen and also think about this sin is nothing more than loving or valuing anything or anyone more than Jesus. That's the essence of sin. It's this loving or valuing anything or anyone more than Jesus Christ. Therefore, to see the infinite beauty and value of Christ is the secret to overcoming temptation. Because no one knowingly sacrifices that which has, is greater in value to obtain that which is lesser in value. So when you see that Jesus is the supreme treasure, you're willing to give up all things and resist all temptations uh, to remain faithful to Him, to express your love to Him. So in our study of Philippians, we will discover the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. The fifth reoccurring theme is the motivation to live for Christ 
in light of his return. There's a tremendous emphasis on the return of Christ in this little book of four chapters. And there is no greater motivation uh, for a Christian to live a pure life and to remain faithful to Christ than the return of Christ. When he will come what? To take his bride, the church, to live with him in an eternal romance. So in our study of Philippians, we'll discover six different passages throughout the book that highlight this great expectation of the believer. Now look at the overview of Philippians there in your sermon notes. That's just a sort of an outline of the book and uh, we'll roughly follow this outline over the next six month, months as we work ourselves through the book. So just look at that very, very briefly. I'm not going to go into great detail on that. You'll see chapter uh, the first chapter, uh, which is uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 30. The whole focus is on the fact to, lit, to live the gospel of Christ by fellowshipping in the gospel of Christ, by advancing the gospel of Christ, and by suffering for the gospel of Christ. And then the next section, which is chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, is that we're to think the mind of Christ. And we'll find the exhortation to have the mind of Christ, the exaltation of the mind of Christ, and then expressing the mind of Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 19, all the way through chapter 321, we come to the third major section, which is to emulate the servants of Christ. And Paul just puts up one example of an, after another who's worthy of emulation, worthy of them following. Like Timothy, he says, display devotion to Christ by seeking the welfare of others. Like Epaphrodites, expend all and risk all in service to Christ. And then he uh, gives himself as an example, like Paul, place confidence in Christ, not yourself. And like Paul, pursue Christ's likeness above all other things. And then in the uh, last chapter of the book, chapter 4, the whole focus is on standing firm in the strength of Christ. To stand firm in harmony with other believers. This is when he actually names the two women who are in a quarrel, and he commands them to... Uh, to uh, live in harmony with one another. He says, stand firm always rejoicing in the Lord. Stand firm in graciousness towards others. Stand firm in God's peace through prayer. Stand firm in right thinking. Stand firm in contentment through Christ in all circumstances. And then stand firm in sacrificial giving to support the cause of Christ. But as we close this morning, I do want you to see what is truly the heart and soul of Philippians, which is this magnificent presentation of the fourfold Christ in relationship to the experience of the believer. And folks, if you miss this, I think you miss the greatest gem, the greatest treasure that's found in the book of Philippians. And it's interesting that these, uh, this fourfold picture of Christ, each uh, picture uh, corresponds with each one of the chapters. And just walk through this with me, and you can. Uh, this is where you'll need to fill in the blanks there. Chapter 1, the emphasis on Christ is that Christ is our life. That Christ is our life. That verse, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. And remember, Paul said that, what? While he's in prison. He doesn't know what the outcome of his trial is going to be. He has appealed his case to Caesar. And do you know at this time who Caesar was? The crazy man, Nero, who found great joy in killing believers, who had Peter put to death, who eventually has Paul put, put to death. Uh, 
So he had no idea what was going to be the outcome of his imprisonment and his impending trial. And in the verse, uh, right before verse 21, he says, hey, this is my expectation of God in the situation that I'm in. This is my hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that Christ with all boldness right now, even as always, would be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, for me, the important thing in life is not my circumstances. It's Christ. He saw his circumstances as an opportunity to put Christ on display. So when he got into prison, he didn't whine about his circumstances. He believed in a sovereign God who is in control of his circumstances. And he says, if God has put me here, then by golly, I'm going to blossom here for Jesus and be a light for Christ. And, if, and we'll discover as we go through the book, as a result of Paul's marvelous attitude, And the marvelous, unspeakable joy that he had in one of the darkest hours in his life, he was able to lead many of the Praetorian Guard to the saving knowledge of Christ. This was the personal bodyguard of Caesar himself. And then when you come to the end of the book, he's able to tell the believers of Philippi, hey, even those within Caesar's household, they give you greetings, indicating that the gospel, as a result of his imprisonment, had penetrated Caesar's household itself. So Christ our life, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what's the application? To live for Christ in all circumstances. To live for Christ in any and all circumstances. And then chapter 2, the focus is on Christ our mind. Christ our mind. This is where in verse 5 we read, have this attitude or have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he talks to us about what that mind is. He says it's a mind that does nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. It doesn't do anything to promote self. But with humility, with lowliness of mind, it regards others as more important than yourself. It does not look out to the interest of, of yourself, but it looks out to the interest of others. Like Christ, we are to empty ourselves All of all our rights, taking upon ourselves as he took upon himself the form of a bondservant. And even as he was made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of what? Death. Sacrificed his life in love for you and me. And that is the way we're to think. That is the way we're to look on one another. That is the way we're to act towards one another. So we'll see Christ our mind. And what is the application? We're to love like Christ in all relationships. Not just live for Christ in all circumstances, but we're to love like Christ in all relationships. And then moving to chapter 3, we see Christ our goal. Christ our goal. It's there in verse 14, he writes, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, uh, upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is this magnificent section of the book where Paul says, I've counted everything lost 
in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Yea, he says, I have counted everything else as garbage, as rubbish in comparison to knowing and gaining Christ. And then you see this tremendous passion in this man. He says, oh, that I would know him, that I would know the fellowship of his sufferings, that I would be made conformable to his death, to know the power of his resurrection. He says, God, help me forget what lies behind and reach forward to that which lies ahead and to reach and press towards that finish line that I might embrace Jesus, my Lord and Savior, and hear those words, what? Well done. Thou good and faithful servant. And so the application is what? Look to Christ in all decisions. Every time I come to a crossroads in life, the simple question is, which path is going to take me nearer to Jesus? That's the question, and that's how Paul lived. He said, my life is Christ, my thoughts are with Christ, and my goal is with Christ. And so every decision I make in life, I want it to honor Him, I want it to please Him, and I want it to take me a step closer to finally arriving into His arms as He welcomes me into my heavenly home. Chapter 4, the focus is what? Christ our strength. The key verse, verse 13, where He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the application here is to lean on Christ in all challenges. Then I'm not to depend upon my own wisdom. I'm not to depend on my own power. But I'm to depend upon Christ who has taken up residence in my heart through the power of His Spirit. And when you put all four of these things together, you see a beautiful, beautiful thing. If Christ truly is my life, if my life evolves around the person of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus who's alive, who loved me, forgave me, then it's obvious he's going to be the focus of what? My thoughts. He'll be the focus of my mind. Whoever you love the most is going to be the focus of your mind. It's going to be the focus of your thoughts. And if he's the focus of my mind, if he's the focus of my thoughts, it's obvious he's going to become the passion, the aspiration of my ambitions, of my goal, to obtain him, to embrace him, to know him as he knows me. And then I realize in chapter 4, but I can only do all those things, what? Through Christ. It's only by his grace, by his power working in me. The Christian life is a supernatural life that cannot be lived just by mere human effort, but by the power of Christ working in and through us. So I lean on Christ in all challenges. So I promise you, this is going to be uh, a magnificent study uh, where we will, um, I trust, learn much about how to live. And I pray that uh, we will not just be gaining information uh, but this truth will bring transformation uh, to our lives as it takes us deeper into the reality experientially that Christ is our life, our mind, our goal, our strength. As we close the service with a time of invitation, a uh, little different service uh, in introducing a, a book that we're about to uh, begin, uh, but possibly you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Christ is not your life. Uh, you're not leaning on Him. 
you have found the, that search for joy to be elusive. You found that joy, yes, it does leak, and I don't know how to contain it. And I hope that you've seen uh, this morning uh, that Jesus Christ is the source of all true joy and happiness. And you'll see that he loved you with a love that will never, as we sang earlier, let you go. A love that will never fail you, a love that will never give up on you, but a love that's not going to let you off. And it's a love that sent him into this world to take the punishment you deserved as your iniquity, your sin was laid on him. And he died in your place to pay the penalty you owed God and then he not only did that, then he put into your account, just deposited right all his righteousness to give you a right standing with God so that you could know eternal life, abundant life. And then the beautiful thing about Christianity is that that living, resurrected Lord, when you put your trust in him, he literally takes up residence in your heart and in your life to lead you along that path that he has laid out for you, that course that he desires you to run. And it's in discovering that course, discovering his plan, living it out, that's where you find true joy. A joy that's not dependent upon circumstances, people or things, but a joy dependent upon Christ who lives within. And I would invite you this day to open up your heart, to ask Jesus to come into your life, to forgive you, of your sin take control of your life I did that many many years ago coming out of a life of very very rebellious sin and I've never regretted that decision a single moment a single second and Jesus has become precious with each uh, new day and, uh, and I want you to know that preciousness too and then for those of you who are followers of Christ uh, that are believers uh, would you just say, God, use this study in Philippians to take me deeper with Jesus. That I would truly know experientially Jesus as my life, my mind, my goal, my strength. And that I would honor you with my life and with my lips. As I not only live the gospel, but I share the gospel with others. So please stand as the invitation is extended. I'll be uh, standing here for anyone uh, that would like to uh, unite with the church, uh, anyone who would like to publicly profess faith in Jesus. Uh, but let's all respond in our hearts.